Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we're here to talk to you about some updates on the immigration front. And as you're going to be able to tell from our episode, the topics and how we were talking about them or planning to talk about them shifted. So our working title for this one is COVID-19 isn't making things better on the immigration front either. Awesome. Because it was looking really great before. So it's a shame. I know. It was so positive. And then, you know, global pandemic and... Right. (laughs) Speaking of global pandemic, how are you doing? I'm okay. You know, we have good moments and not so stellar moments, I'll say. You know, I have one kid who is my M is for Mimosa kid who, you know, is forever my his greatest accomplishment, I think, in elementary school so far was to associate M is with Mimosa. That's amazing. Yeah, he redrew that glass picture for me in our first week of shelter in place. And I was like, yeah, that's what mommy needs right now. Thank you. But you know what I did discover during shelter in place, Sarah, which I haven't even told you about yet. Okay, so do you remember how I've been fascinated with Designated Survivor? Oh, God. All our listeners even know that you've been fascinated by Designated Survivor. Guess what? Netflix released a Korean version. It's Designated Survivor 60 Days. I seriously have been waiting to tell you this so I could just get your reaction on this. It's in Korean. You know, I love those foreign language films. And like the first episode starts with the assembly building blowing up. So I was like, yes, designated survivor in South Korea. So the irony of South Korea, you're welcome, everyone who's looking to you're welcome. So I mean, I'm just sitting here being like, so are they going to incorporate the live stream of a deadly virus in this episode? Or not asking any questions. It's just like a gift from, you know, whoever the Netflix gods like, thank you, designated survivor. It's 60 days, though. So it makes me think that's actually in the title. So it makes me think that this will be a much shorter version than the US one. So interesting. I know. I know you're waiting for that. I really don't know what to make of it. I'm actually highly unmoved by that conversation. (laughs) But I'm glad you found something to entertain you, and I'm glad that the children know that you like mimosas. Well, I've watched exactly 27 minutes of the first episode, so that is pretty indicative of how Shelter in Place has gone. So how about you? How are things? Good. We're also on uh, Shelter in Place, effectively. I don't know what the official title is in Denver, but we are not allowed to leave our homes except to go to the doctor, the grocery store, or to exercise. And when we're in public, we are to maintain six feet distance from other people. So I don't know where all of our listeners are, but if you are with us in this whole shelter in place thing, we feel you. Yeah. And and we're recording this about a week before this episode air date. So things might have changed a lot by the time this episode is published. That's true. It's true. I'm afraid because one of our dear friends is actually a nurse in the MICU, which is like the step-down ICU, and they are all effectively on COVID duty. Like they're all running shifts there. And to see the photo of her at the hospital and head to toe, like all the gear that you see totally covered and sending me a link being like, you know, one of the ways you can help is to maybe send hot foods to the nurses and doctors who are here. I'm like, yes, yes, we will be doing that when we did. That she was saying the hospitals aren't yet, it's not even bad yet, and it's been bad. And so I think that's, you know, by the time this episode's released, I'm curious. I'm hopeful, but not really hopeful about where things will be at that point. But I'm hoping that all of our people are healthy 
and we are feeling okay. Because right now I feel like this is a really anxiety provoking time. You know, it's stressful. People's jobs, income, your health, your safety, your sense of purpose, you know, you're locked down. What do you do when you are locked down? It's very anxiety provoking to not know what to expect. And I guess it's okay to just acknowledge anxiety because it's real. And I think if anybody's out there needing help, please get help. I think a lot of practitioners are doing telehealth right now. And I guess the only thing I'd say is, I mean, I'm glad I have you, Misasha, and my family is all here with us too. But luckily I'm here so that I can vent everything. I think the worst thing you can do is probably to bottle it up if you can sort of don't have someone right there to talk to because you tend to get more of what you resist. And I feel like it's really right now time to put our mental and physical health first. So... That said, there's a part of me that's like, why are we even talking about immigration right now when there's all this nonsense, like crazy preservation going on right now? But I guess it could be helpful to occasionally take our focus away from things that bother us, like, you know, the endless number of crumbs you have to clean under the kitchen table because the kids are always eating or all the true fears about, oh my gosh, what's happening with our money, our income, you know, to just look at the bigger picture, you know, not saying deny what's actually happening and what the frustrations are in our life or the anxiety that we're feeling, but also making an effort to put things in context in the sort of round circle of things in the big whole, you know, view, not just this little slice of it. And so if we can get out of our own little worlds to remember we're part of a huge society out there and that other people's problems are legit too, it might give us some perspective. So I'm glad that we're doing this is the long and the short of it. And I hope everyone is interested in taking a break from their real lives to listen to what else is going on out there, because this stuff is carrying on regardless of whether we are out there or not. Yeah. And I think that the point or what we were talking about in the last episode or the last coronavirus related episode that we did was that in a global pandemic, you know, a virus doesn't discriminate against who you are or, you know, different classes or the color of your skin or your religious beliefs. It pretty much attacks everyone equally. And so this is a really great time to remember that we literally are in this together because every individual action has a direct impact on everyone else around you. So that's at least how I like to think about that or when you think about what am I doing in this Because even in a shelter in place, in what we know to be true now, staying home is doing something and it's doing something really big and important. But things are clearly different now and things might be very tough. So but in this age of uncertainty, it's even tougher for those who are being held at our border, for example. So this was originally slated to be an immigration update episode, as we said at the start. As you all know that we are in our election arcs right now, or if you don't know, please go back and listen because you might have some time now to listen to or to binge listen to our past episodes. But we believe immigration is a key election issue, as do the candidates for president of the United States. So this episode was going to be about the public charge rule. We'll get into that more. And that part is actually kind of still true. And about how the Trump administration announced in early March that it was going to start taking DNA from immigrant detainees at the border. Uh, which, if you stop to think about that for just a second, suggests, among other things, a gigantic breach of privacy. But in writing this, we also realize that COVID-19 has had a much bigger impact on the rights of this particular group, that is to say, immigrants to the United States, than we thought. And so we, like everyone and everything else these days, decided to pivot. So now let's talk about immigration in the light of COVID-19. 
You mean COVID-19? Okay, so I actually did spend some time <laughs> searching. I literally typed in any other songs, COVID-19, <laughs> into the web browser. I hear there is a version of one of the ludicrous songs out there, which is a rap version, which now I'm going to have to check out because I need something. I have heard that in my head because you did that. You're welcome. You're very, very welcome. Those weren't the words I was looking for, but... Yeah, you need to go back and listen to the original coronavirus episode if you want to understand where that came from. But it's interesting to talk about immigration. You know, we're going to talk about the people at the border, but I also just want to mention the rights of and what's happening to immigrants here. People of Asian descent are being spat upon. People in our government are calling this the Chinese virus. We mentioned last time it is not China virus. Like it is a virus that is, as you mentioned me, Sasha, like non-discriminatory. And so we need to call it by its proper name because words matter. And so... There's that part of it, which is just on the surface of someone who looks different being treated poorly because of how they look based on this virus. But I think if we're talking about the immigrants at our actual southern border, I think it's really important to begin with gratitude because we are super thankful that organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center's Southeast Immigrant Freedom Initiative have team members who are still at the front lines working alongside asylum seekers and immigrants to achieve justice in immigration and customs enforcement, detention centers, and courtrooms. So I'll call them ICE going forward. But the other thing is a hooray for people who are working together. We talk about how important collaboration is in times like this. And the SPLC collaborated with the Americans for Immigrant Justice, Project South, and Asian Americans Advancing Justice to ask that facilities run by private prisons under ICE supervision in Florida, in Louisiana, and Georgia disclose all of the protocols that are being used to prevent the spread of coronavirus and grant release of all individuals who are at high risk of serious effects from the virus. Their team members are reporting dangerous conditions at detention facilities, something that never would have crossed my mind, to be honest. And it's including stuff like at Pine Prairie in Louisiana, where there's a lack of soap and hand sanitizer for the people detained there, and that's just to start. In a letter to ICE, the SPLC argued that this is a public health emergency and called for the immediate end of all facility-to-facility -facility transfers to prevent the spread of the virus. They demanded tests for the current population in ICE custody and all people entering ICE custody exhibiting symptoms or risk factors. And they're saying we should provide proper hygienic supplies at all detention and check-in facilities and allow legal workers visiting detained people to bring gloves and disinfecting wipes into the visitation rooms. That makes sense, right? I mean, people are people. We need to look out for them. And I'm sure the question remains, though, what do we do with people who've broken the law or who aren't citizens who are still vulnerable to this illness? For, as a human, what do you do? I think the pandemic has really complicated the immigration court system as well, from what you've told me, Sasha, with unclear directive from the Executive Office for Immigration Review. The decision to close courts has been left to individual judges. It's totally inconsistent, and it contradicts the recommendations of public health experts, and it puts immigrants, their families, attorneys, and immigration judges at risk. So, I mean, it's basically created a really unsafe limbo and is yet another reminder of how our country, even though it's so advanced in some ways, is kind of still at the level of third world countries when it comes to how we're able to protect our most vulnerable from COVID-19. You're going to kill me. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Oh, my God. If you sing that again, I'm going to reach through the screen and just shake you. <laughs> Yes. And 
you know, besides what you just stated is that that is one thing that is really happening that we have control over. But there is an even more disturbing trend that we are seeing along the lines of, you know, how we are able to protect our most vulnerable. And the trend is that our current administration is not trying to protect our most vulnerable. Instead, it's using this global pandemic to slowly chip away at constitutional rights in a terrifying way. And I don't use the word terrifying loosely here. I know, you know, I get real hype when it comes to legal stuff, but this is very scary. You know, as a lawyer, I see something like this, and this is a huge, huge red flag because And let's think about this for a second. If you are using a global health crisis where people are dying as an excuse to remove and chip away at civil rights, we're definitely not the democracy that we thought we were. And we're certainly not making America great again. That's for sure. So let's break this down. The Justice Department has quietly asked Congress for the ability to ask chief judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies part of a push for new powers that comes as COVID-19 spreads throughout the United States. So if you, just to go back to this statement for a second, this request to detain people indefinitely without trial is so egregiously against what we have upheld in our country through the Constitution that when I read this sentence and in the source material that I was reading, I jaw on the ground. Documents reviewed by Politico detail the department's request, that's Justice Department's request to lawmakers on a host of topics, including the statute of limitations, asylum, and the way court hearings are conducted. Politico also reviewed and previously reported on documents seeking the authority to extend deadlines on merger reviews and prosecutions. So Politico was our source for this. Politico has been doing a lot of work to gather the documents and really seeing what the Justice Department is looking at and asking for now. When asked, a Justice Department spokesperson declined to comment on the documents, which was super surprising. So the move, though, has tapped into a broader fear among civil liberties advocates and Donald Trump's critics, which is that the president will use a moment of crisis to push for controversial policy changes. So, like, it's not in our country, but I think in a certain country called Russia, Putin asked for the ability to have repeat terms until he dies, right? Like, he's just going to be there right now until he dies, but then everybody else is going back after him to be limited term. But he's going to get special powers. That's what's happening in Russia right now. Yep. So that's the kind of stuff you're saying could potentially... Not that necessarily, though. I mean, Lord knows, but... Yeah, well, and that's a hallmark of not a democracy, right? Or not even close to one. And we have always held ourselves out to be very different than Russia procedurally. But when you're looking into Donald Trump's recent actions, he has cited the pandemic as a reason for heightening border restrictions and restricting asylum claims. He has also pushed for further tax cuts as the economy withers, arguing that it would soften the financial blow to Americans. And even without policy changes, Trump has vast emergency powers that he could deploy right now to try and to slow the coronavirus outbreak. Got it. I mean, just to confirm, because when he has you know, tightened border restrictions and restricted asylum claims. It's not because those are necessarily the biggest threat to our nation from coronavirus. It seems to me it's the people playing on playgrounds. It's the people partying on beaches. It also surprises me because tax cuts don't seem to be the biggest problem for Americans right now. It's that you don't have a job because everything is shut down, right? 
I mean, I applaud the intention, but it does not seem to be like it makes sense to deploy these particular changes. And I feel like it's going to cause more problems, which will get worse over time as this whole thing plays out. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, in recent days, as of this recording, Trump did deploy the Defense Protection Act, which allows for a lot more the medical supplies and gear, the PPE that hospitals and healthcare providers need to be made available to them. But at the same time, if he's talking about lifting social distancing restrictions to, you know, reopen this country by Easter and saying he's tired of talking about the coronavirus, I think we have a fundamental disconnect here with where our real issues are. So going back to those Department of Justice requests, those DOJ requests, which are unlikely to make it through a Democratic-led House, at least at this point, span several stages of the legal process. So if you've listened to our criminal justice arc, we talk a little bit about this legal process. And that includes from the initial arrest to how cases are processed and investigated. In one of the documents, the department proposed that Congress grant the attorney general power to ask the chief judge of any district court to pause court proceedings whenever the district court is fully or partially closed by virtue of any natural disaster, civil disobedience, or other emergency situation. So this basically allows any judge in a time like this, like what's happening right now, to make his or her own decision as to whether or not her court should be closed and cases paused. In other words, the proposal would also grant those top judges broad authority to pause court proceedings during emergencies. So these changes that the Department of Justice are requesting are not just for right now coronavirus, like let's knee jerk reacting. This is for a blanket policy change for the future. That is crazy. I know. But the way that they're wording it is it's not saying partially closed by virtue of the novel coronavirus, you know, or COVID-19. It is very broadly worded, any natural disaster. So you've got a hurricane, let's say you've got an earthquake. Same scenario could apply. How does court normally get paused right now? Because you know what, if your freaking court building is destroyed in a hurricane or a tornado, I can understand where you're like, "Mm, can't meet today and make a decision. But how does that work right now? I have never heard of a pause short of a physical destruction of a building. And even then, you move to temporary accommodations. I mean, it takes a lot. And in this current state, you know, we have hearings that are remote. We have depositions that are remote. But we have a lot of stuff that is being paused although not due to a sort of a blanket power given to a judge in any, you know, other emergency situation. Right. So this power would apply to any statutes or rules of procedure otherwise affecting pre-arrest, post-arrest, pre-trial, trial and post-trial procedures in criminal and juvenile proceedings and all civil process and proceedings, according to the draft legislative language that the department shared with Congress. So in making the case for the change, the DOJ wrote that individual judges can currently pause proceedings during emergencies, but that their proposal would make sure all judges in any particular district could handle emergencies in a consistent manner. So the request raised eyebrows because of its potential implications for habeas corpus, which is the constitutional right to appear before a judge after arrest and seek release. So basically, you can't get arrested and just held indefinitely. You get arrested, you appear in front of a judge, you have that initial plea. 
right? That, you know, you either get bail set, they deny bail, but there is some process that gets you just from being held for years, right? Right. Because right now, say someone goes out, they do a stupid thing, they get into a car accident right now in Coronavirusville, and then they get thrown in jail and their family never hears from them because they're not processed. They just sort of disappear is effectively what could happen because there's no, they're saying that there should, the judge should just be allowed to hold them until they're able to get to them. Right. And that's exactly what Norman Reimer, the executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers said. He said that not only would that be a constitutional violation, basically, but it says affecting pre-arrest. So Sarah, that's exactly the scenario you described. So that means you could be arrested and never brought before a judge until they decide that the emergency or the civil disobedience is over. And he says he finds that absolutely terrifying, especially in a time of emergency. We should be very careful about granting new powers to the government. Right. I mean, that is such a clear constitutional violation that, I mean, okay, that's assuming you care about the Constitution in the first place, and that should be sort of a ground rules thing. But that is the fundamental principle in our constitutional rights, that you, if you are arrested, you're brought before a judge. You can hear the charges that are being put forward against you, and you have the opportunity to plead to those charges. So Reimer, the executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, said that the possibility of chief judges suspending all court rules during an emergency without a clear end in sight was deeply disturbing. He said that is something that should not happen in a democracy. Amen to that. The department also asked Congress to pause the statute of limitations for criminal investigations and civil proceedings during national emergencies and for one year following the end of the national emergency, according to the draft legislative text. And as we know, Trump recently declared the coronavirus crisis a national emergency. So if passed, that would go into effect in our current state. But so I don't get that. So doesn't that part make more sense? Like if you're being sued during a national emergency and everything was put on hold, you have more time to look into it or like, I don't get what the problem is with this one. Well, I think yes. And no, because it might not seem that big of a deal, right? But if you look at, if you think about civil proceedings, or if you think about proceedings in general, another constitutional guarantee is the right to a speedy trial. So that basically takes that away, too. I mean, I guess if we're starting to take away parts of the Constitution, then, you know, who cares? But let's say that you're in a pre-arrest or post-arrest state, because remember, they can sort of pause and hold things indefinitely in any state. So that doesn't just mean that, you know, they are holding someone, they're investigating, they could hold you indefinitely without that judicial appearance to start under this and just say, you know, this was okay. And also, if you're pausing the statute of limitations for criminal investigations and civil proceedings, I think that will disproportionately affect people who are not white. Just a thought there. But I think that the real issue is you're starting to take away constitutional rights. And the minute you start taking one away, it's a real slippery slope as to what constitutional rights are you really going to get to keep? Because what's next? Free speech? I mean, that's an extreme. But... If you're taking away, you know, certain amendments, then where do you stop? And actually thinking about it from a psychological perspective, if you think about how much this current uncertainty is driving me nuts, at least, I feel like imagine you have a lawsuit against you or you're trying to get something resolved. And now they're like, well, we'll do it for another year, maybe two. You're constantly waiting in this state of uncertainty, and that is very difficult. And I guess that's also why a speedy trial is helpful. But you're, they're saying that they might take that away. Okay, I get that now. 
So you would think that we would be all out of controversial requests, but we are not. So there's another one from the DOJ. The department is looking to change the federal rules of criminal procedure, which are the rules which govern how criminal cases are tried, basically from how you can file documents to how procedure in the courtroom, procedure pre-trial and post-trial. So those are the rules that govern that. So they're looking to change those in some cases to expand the use of video conference hearings and to let some of those hearings happen without the defendant's consent, according to the draft legislative text. Video teleconferencing may be used to conduct appearance an appearance under this rule, read a draft of potential new language for Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 5F, crossing out the phrase, if the defendant consents. Video teleconferencing may be used to arraign a defendant, read draft text of Rule 10C, again, striking out the phrase, if the defendant consents. So, you know, you might notice what language is missing. The language of consent? Yes, that. And so Senator Mike Lee from Utah, his tweet, once he heard about this one, pretty much sums it up for me, over my dead body, in caps. I think that, I mean, you to take away consent if you're a defendant and bulldoze them through hearings that, you know, if they're holding a hearing under whatever circumstances and you, you're not able to consent to that, then that takes away a lot of the fairness and impartiality of our justice system. So let's think about immigration in a different light, the public charge light, but more on that in a second. Because when you think about people who are not citizens of the United States, but are working those jobs that are perhaps not considered essential jobs in shelter in place areas, the LA Times had a great story, which made us think because according to the Times, the coronavirus was not on the agenda. When a legal aid group two months ago invited farm workers who work in like date groves and lemon orchards and vineyards in Coachella in California, in Coachella Valley, and they invited them over to an info session about immigration issues. But when Luz Gallegos and her team showed up over the weekend, they were cornered by people who peppered them with questions about the virus. It sounded like after public health authorities announced the first two deaths from the virus in this part of Southern California, again, both in the Coachella Valley, as in Coachella, people were really, really concerned. And by people, I'm talking about immigrants. Ms. Gallegos is the director of the TODEC Legal Center, and she said there's a new layer of fear in the immigrant community right now created by COVID-19. I mean, she's standing in a parking lot of the town library, which had basically abruptly closed because of the pandemic. And she said that we believe some members will be afraid to seek the care they need. So you're talking about a gathering of director of a legal center and a whole bunch of immigrants. And they're basically saying, if I go to the hospital, is it going to hurt my chances of becoming a legal permanent resident? If I'm undocumented, could seeking treatment make me vulnerable to deportation? If I miss work because more people are forced to stay home, how will I feed my family and make the rent? If you think broadly, as coronavirus sweeps across the country, immigrants may be among the least able to self-isolate and seek the medical care that is essential to protecting not just their health, but also slowing the spread of disease for all of us. And they're doing, in some ways, essential jobs. How are you going to get fruit and vegetables into the supermarkets if you don't have somebody working the farm to get them? This is essential. So... When you think about the borders, the Trump administration on March 18th closed the border with Canada to all but essential traffic. And I'm really glad that we had literally canceled the tickets for my in-laws to come down from Canada because they had been planning to visit shortly thereafter. But 
President Trump was also considering shutting the southern border to those without legal authorization, hoping to check the spread of the virus. But many of the unauthorized immigrants already in the U.S. face the same threat from the virus as everyone else and are really just less equipped to protect themselves. Some of those without health insurance are legitimately you know, fearful that going to a public hospital or clinic is going to ruin their chances of getting a green card under the Trump administration's new public assistance regulations for immigrants. Other immigrants are afraid of putting them in the crosshairs of like the enforcement of the immigration agency here if they step forward for help, because even in this last week, ICE agents have continued to make arrests in some of the regions hardest hit by the virus, like California and New York. Amazing. This is a quote here, but the fear that this administration has fueled in immigrant communities is thwarting efforts to protect the public health of everybody. And that comes from Tanya Broder, who's an attorney who specializes in healthcare access for immigrants at the National Immigration Law Center. Immigrants who are doing stuff like working our fields to provide our supermarkets with fresh fruits and vegetables, they're often just scraping by. And it makes them really vulnerable to the spread of illness, especially in cities where housing costs are high. I mean, you think about in East Los Angeles, Latino immigrants are often crowding an entire family into a single bedroom in a house. In the San Gabriel Valley, east of LA, thousands of Asian workers live in overcrowded apartments called boarding houses, and they work at jobs that really often do not offer paid sick leave, nor the luxury of being able to self-quarantine in the event that they're exposed to the virus. Louise McCarthy, who's president of the Community Clinic Association of Los Angeles, says, unfortunately, these immigrants face a very tough choice during this crisis, risk exposure or risk homelessness. A low-income worker can't just take a day off. Losing a day's pay can mean losing your housing. Felix Aguilar, who's the chief medical officer at Chinatown Service Center, which has four clinics in the greater Los Angeles area, said that it has stepped up screening for the coronavirus in person and over the phone. But he just said it's a matter of time. We're getting ready. We know the onslaught is coming. And I think it's important to go back to and really think about health insurance in this scenario, because among all immigrants, 23% of those who are lawfully in the country and 45% of those who are undocumented lack health insurance, according to a report by the Kaiser Family Foundation. In most states, community clinics serve people who require medical care, regardless of their status and ability to pay. And some states, including California, New York, Massachusetts, and Illinois, cover medical care costs for undocumented children. But because of the Trump administration's public charge rule, Ms. Broder, the same attorney that, Sarah, you had mentioned before, says even when services are available, immigrants may be afraid to seek the care that they need. Okay, so I need to ask, what is this public charge rule? Okay, so according to the acting deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli, this rule enforces a longstanding law requiring aliens to be self-sufficient, reaffirming the American ideals of hard work, perseverance and determination. So that's the official DHS statement. But the ideals that it enforces are certainly anything really but American. So in a nutshell, the public charge rule is when you consider whether someone can immigrate into the United States or if, and I'm going to use aliens in the, you know, the DHS way, which means someone who is not a U.S. citizen and has and is an immigrant, or if aliens in the United States who have a non-immigrant visa want to renew or change their status, the government can consider whether someone is, quote, likely at any time in the future to become a public charge, which basically means they rely on public assistance in some way and make them inadmissible to the United States. 
In addition, for those non-immigrant aliens who wish to extend their stay, they have to demonstrate as a condition of approval that they have not received since obtaining the status that they seek to ex extend or change public benefits for more than 12 months in total within a 36-month period. So it's not that difficult if you really think about it to see what this rule is trying to do and who it's directed at. And it also shouldn't be hard to really see that these factors to be considered can be applied very subjectively and at the best subjectively, I think, and at the worst with the discrimination that has sort of plagued our country throughout history. Public charge rules were used back in the day to exclude tens of thousands of German Jews from the United States who were trying to flee Nazi oppression. And this came back into the public eye in on January 27th, when the Supreme Court, you know, basically cleared, it's made its ruling clearing the way for the public charge rule to take effect, ironically, on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So since the new rules announcement, there has been a nationwide uproar as civil rights groups turned to the courts for an injunction. And that's when the Supreme Court ruled five to four on the 27th of January to allow the rule. And DHS announced that the rule would take effect on Monday, February 24th. And it did. So right before the coronavirus really hit the United States in, you know, a very immediate way. And so I can understand the concerns about the immigrants, but I have thoughts on this and I'm not sure what to make of it, but I'm not entirely opposed to this only because, and I want to know what I'm not seeing, because from what I understand, Canada has, and they're, they're not the most fabulous country in the world either, but they have something going where they basically have a points system to decide who's going to be a benefit to the country to admit for things like visas or whatever. And they literally listed on their website, but it's stuff like education or skills and this sort of stuff. So what is wrong with having some sort of admission criteria, you know? I think in a vacuum, I can see that. And I think that's exactly what President Trump sort of banks on, because I think that the, there are differences between the U.S. and Canada. And I think the fundamental problem is that Canada has a point system and the U.S. will make it very subjective. And we have a history of racism that Canada doesn't have. So when you add those two together, and then you also think about immigration patterns and flow, right? Like if you think about numbers of immigrants to Canada versus number of immigrants to the United States, and you think about what countries they're coming from, I'm guessing, although admittedly, I didn't look at numbers, that we have immigrants coming from different places than the vast majority of immigrants to Canada. And we overall probably have a higher rate of immigration just based on our borders, right? Like we have different borders. We also have a lot of people who are seeking asylum. So if you go back to the public charge rule being used to invoke against German Jews, like we can easily use the public charge rule in this instance to be like, eh, you know what? We don't really know what you could be educated in your country, but, you know, we don't know, like you could, you might be, you know, a public charge at some point. And so we're going to say no, and you're going to go back and get killed in your country. So I think if we are really, and, you know, we have had all these stated, you know, what does America stand for? Like, are we the, you know, the land of opportunity and the free? Do we have those open borders? Are we willing to be that country? That has been our history. And the public charge rule is a very distinct change to that. So I think that 
what you said is exactly what I think the best hearted people who support the public charge will believe, right? Fundamentally, that we should be in a nation of people, everyone's pulling their own weight. But I think that when you think about pulling your own weight, right, and we just talked about the people who are in those essential functions that could have easily been shut out because of that public charge rule. So that's what I'm worried about. I think you have that rule. It is licensed to discriminate in a very subjective way. Yeah. Okay. And I think also what you say makes sense, you know, and the way that they phrase it is Canada goes, here's what we want. America goes, here's what we don't want. Yeah. I think you're exactly right on the perspective issue, right? Yeah. And Canada is a lot less unequal. America has a huge disparity in, I mean, we're right in the middle of all of our inequities, like income inequality, healthcare inequality, educational inequality will be coming up soon. Like there's a lot of imbalance in this country, which they don't have in Canada. So they can ask for things differently, probably. Yeah, I think you don't have a history of slavery in Canada. And that is fundamentally such a huge thing that has shaped our nation and our rhetoric, that it is very hard to separate it out when there's any subjectivity in who we let into this country and who we don't in that way. All right. But going so that's the public charge rule. And now going back to immigrants being afraid to seek the care that they need, the People's Community Clinic in Austin, Texas, which is a city at the time of this recording with a handful of confirmed coronavirus cases, had already been struggling to manage spikes in no-shows among undocumented patients intimidated by recent ICE arrest activity, as well as by the public charge rule when the first cases began to appear. Regina Rogoff, who's the clinic's chief executive officer, said, I know there are people reticent, but what we tried to do is to reassure them. She said, we're here to serve patients regardless of what their paperwork says. I'm hoping that's how our patients continue to see us. Even before the coronavirus arrived in the United States, having a large population that feels disenfranchised from the mainstream medical community heightened the risk for transmission of infectious diseases. And that's according to Lawrence Goslin, who's a professor of global health law at Georgetown University, and he's also an advisor to the World Health Organization. He says the first rule of public health is to gain people's trust to come forward. People who don't seek care cannot be tested or treated and their contacts won't be traced. The last thing immigrants want to do in this political environment is tell health officials about their friends who are also unlawfully here, he said. So looking at this, more than 450 public health and legal experts signed an open letter early in March to Vice President Pence and other federal, state and local leaders demanding a fair and effective response to the virus, which would include a declaration that medical facilities or immigration enforcement free zones as similarly occurred after recent hurricanes and after 9-11. So ICE classifies medical facilities as sensitive locations where enforcement is avoided, although exceptions can be made. And we all know subjectivity is not awesome. So in this instance, on March 13th, after President Trump announced a national health emergency, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which screens green card applicants, appeared to signal that it was suspending enforcement of the public charge rule. So it posted a statement on its website, and it says that seeking treatment or preventative services for the virus would not adversely affect applicants applying for permanent residence. And I, you know, I, like the lawyer and me, obviously wanted to read this statement. It's very legal. So I'm not sure, you know, if you're opening, first of all, if you're going to their website and you're reading this statement, I'm not sure you're understanding what that really means. The agency says if the alien is prevented from working or attending school and must rely on public benefits for the duration of the COVID-19 outbreak and recovery phase, the alien can provide an explanation and relevant supporting documentation. 
The administration has not publicized the change, and absent a clear shift in enforcement, many immigrants are likely to remain reluctant to seek government-subsidized medical care. I'm not surprised at all, because going back to what Goslin said, you need trust, first of all. And I think we have an administration and policies that have changed drastically and quickly, so the trust is not there. And, you know, he also says people who are fearful are not going to be reading the fine print of policy. And if any doubt, they will stay away from being tested and treated. And, you know, maybe this makes more sense if we focus on the people most effective. So, for example, for more than 25 years or the better part of their lives, Maria and Francisco Garcia have worked as undocumented field workers, picking and packing cauliflower, peppers and dates in the low desert of the Coachella Valley. So these are exactly those people, Sarah, that you're talking about getting the fruits and vegetables to our stores. They recently became eligible to apply for a green card through an American-born child who turned 21. But with coronavirus cases on the rise in the area where they live, the couple have grown increasingly anxious about falling ill and jeopardizing their chance of becoming lawful residents. It was the reason that their daughter, Mariana, attended that event that, Sarah, you were talking about in the parking lot in the Coachella Valley. She said, my mom is panicked about getting the COVID-19. If she goes to the hospital, she thinks that will make her a public charge. And I'm sure she's not alone in that respect. So Ms. Garcia was relieved to learn about the exception, but doubted that it would make her mother really feel any better. Her parents live paycheck to paycheck, and they're also worried about not making the $500 monthly rent on their mobile home if they get sick. And, you know, they interviewed another undocumented immigrant, Sandy Cobarubias, and she said that they are petrified. Even after learning, you know, the what the policy change was that seeking medical help for the virus would not jeopardize her chances of qualifying for a green card, she didn't feel any better either. She said this president says one thing one day and does another the next. And so, as you know, we just discussed, I can't fault her for thinking this. But in case this isn't, exceedingly clear. We are hurting everyone if we can't take care of everyone. If you think about what has happened in different countries and how each country has responded or has not responded effectively to a pandemic that is threatening everyone in its borders and in the world, we have to be able to take care of everyone. So, and, you know, as we are recording this on the day that Congress passed its stimulus package, basically, but Part of the stimulus package was a really big sort of carve out of an exclusion of immigrants and low wage workers. And so the Southern Poverty Law Center released a statement about how, you know, this exclusion was wrong. And their statement read, in part, now more than ever, it is clear how crucial the contributions made by immigrant and low-wage workers are to our country. Immigrants and low-wage workers are woven into the fabric of this economy, yet the current proposed stimulus, and this was, you know, several days before it was passed, completely disregards this fact by failing to include them in the proposed relief package. As members of Congress debate and pontificate, these workers are literally on the front lines, stocking groceries, cleaning our hospitals, providing care for our most vulnerable all the while exposing themselves and their families to the coronavirus. The stimulus must not move forward until there are adequate safeguards for their health and well-being. At the least, testing and treatment must be made available to all, regardless of immigration status. Additionally, any economic stimulus must include meaningful elements to provide for these workers. This illness doesn't discriminate, neither should we. Amen to that. Yeah, seriously. So how can we help? I mean, Misasha, you're a lawyer and you are doing all sorts of cool law related things behind the scenes. But there was a part of me that's like, short of staying home, what on earth can I do that's not 
just money related. So we did come up with a few things and I know everybody, so many of us are busy with added responsibilities, scarce resources, but if you have resources, time or both, I mean, here's some great ways to help our collective community. One is a fund. It's for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and they have a coronavirus care fund, which we can send out a link for. I think they're also, at least as of yesterday, they had someone who was matching their whatever dollars you donated. So your donation would actually be double or up to five times, I think, in amount. But yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. We have RACES, R-A-I-C-E-S. They are asking us to write to say, can we release all the immigrants who are at risk right now? So we can send you that link if you want to do some writing, because that could definitely help. There is, you know, I don't know about you, but I got snowed under with, oh my gosh, so much homeschooling stuff. But if you want to talk about coronavirus and what educators need to know, there is a great resource from Teaching Tolerance, which we can send as well. And obviously, locally, if you're healthy and can deliver food to those who cannot leave their home, you know, we've said this before, if you can offer supplies, if you can connect with your neighbors, reach out to your friends just to stay connected. Those are all things that you can also still do that keep our mental and physical health doing better. Lastly, for an inside look as to why it's so important to take drastic steps now, listen to the former director of ICE and their plea to release immigrants from detention now. So all this and more, if you sign up for our email list at dearwhitewomen.com, you can get all our resources, which we will email out in just a little while. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 